Welcome to the Old Galway Diary podcast. Each week, Tom Kenny and I, Ronnie O'Gorman, write a column in the Galway Advertiser. Before it goes to press, we contact each other and share what is filling the page that particular week. This podcast is that conversation. And I would add, we enjoy talking to you and would appreciate if you would give us a rate and review on the Apple Podcast app. Tom, good morning on a snowy day in Galway. I don't know what it's yes, like in Barna. Indeed. <coughs> it is in Barna too. Okay, good man. It's just like a little coating of sugar, sugar ice, icing sugar or something over the town, but it looks very pretty actually. But um, yeah, winter is still with us. We're still in. Oh, it. oh yeah, it's the month of January. Yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah. Tom, listen, tell me, what are you talking about this week? What are we going to see? I am talking about the Corrib Rowing and Yachting Club. Ah, yeah, I know it well. This was originally established in 1864. Now, when you think of it, that was just a couple of years after the famine. Uh, And it must have been quite an achievement when, you know, to open a kind of a leisure stroke entertainment facility uh, in the aftermath of all that horror and suffering. So it must be one of the oldest amateur clubs in the country. Uh, In fact, it's certainly in Galway. Uh, And a very attractive building, Tom, wasn't it? It is. Well, it's it's the one we're looking at now is a new one. But the one before it, which was a smaller version of it, was also very attractive. It wasn't actually in, it was on the other side of the river when it was set up originally. And... um, the the it, how they be started was the, the kind of inauguration of the club. It took the form of what they called a rowing match right. between two rowing pairs. Uh, one one boat, obviously, one and the other. And <clears throat> the local rep- press reported that a respectable assemblage thronged the banks on either side, and all present seemed very much interested in the contest. The clubhouse was actually in existence on that inaugural day, but a very large number of young Galway gentlemen, as they were described, gathered for the occasion. And their first meeting was a big, big success. So the committee felt confident that the members would find the manly sport of rowing to be both pleasurable and profitable. Right. (laughs) Unfortunately, the the minutes of the first couple of years have never been found, but we're very lucky that Morris Semple was a lifelong member of this uh, club and that he went through the minutes and indeed he published them in book form entitled A Century of Minutes, the Story of the Corrib Club from 1864 to 1966. <clears throat> uh, this book is actually very scarce. Uh, I think there was only a very limited and small number of them published. So for any of you Marisempel aficionados looking, I have to tell you, it's going to be very, very difficult to find it. But anyway, on with the club. Uh, Until uh, 1875, which was the year that the commercial club opened, uh, any competitive rowing on the river was confined to the club members of the Corrib Club. 
So thereafter, once the two clubs were there, the competition increased greatly, and they called these badge races. They were regularly held between the clubs, and they helped really to generate a great deal of interest in the sport. The um, the course for these races, it was from the Black Boy Opsit Steamers Quay up to the Iodine Works and back. There were boys moored at the upper end, and uh, the racing boats were classified as pair oared, four oared, skulls, gigs, and skiffs. That sounds very antediluvian. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, they were very fortunate in that <clears throat> the development of steam navigation on the Coral, uh, it meant that they needed a navigation channel on the river and on the lake. And this enabled uh, members to row and sail freely. Now, sailing was becoming an increasingly important sport uh, with this club and a source of leisure to people in Galway. And membership was growing. And, of course, this meant uh, a pressure on space in the clubhouse. And so they began to search for another site. But they were very fortunate. In 1903, Mr. Purse of the distillery, he presented them with the present site and a new clubhouse was formally opened in July 1904. <clears throat> and the following year, they spent six guineas on the purchase of two guns from the Renmore Battery. They're still there. They are. Uh, the interesting thing is that the concrete base for the guns cost more, more than the actual guns. Right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, ladies, ladies were admitted to the yes. club in 1912. My goodness. Uh, <laughs> there was a brief problem with audited accounts in 1916 because John Faller of the Faller's jewellery business, he was the uh, secretary and he was, of course, was uh, also a great Republican. And he was, in fact, uh, Sent and turned by the British, uh, lifted during uh, the, after the 1916 rising and brought to Frank Gok. And uh, as it happened, uh, some members during the War of Independence, <clears throat> some members of the British Army occupied the clubhouse as well. Uh, they, they had rowing, rowing was probably the main sport, sailing was growing all the time. Uh, in 1931, they had a ladies' crew, a very famous ladies' crew. They were successful. In fact, they were unbeaten for about four years. Uh, and I have all of the names of them, and I know them because my aunt May, May Kenny, May Lohan, as she was after she got married, she stroked that crew, and uh, they were unbeaten. There was a Miss L. Horn, S. Pringle, M. Delaney, and M. Caulfield was the Cox. As well, so in uh, 1936, they had a senior eight, uh, two senior fours, a junior four, a ladies four, schoolboys four, and three scholars in regular training. Now that's a lot of rowing people, and certainly for the 1930s. Mm -hmm. But it happened to have been a very auspicious year because that year they won their senior eight crew won the Leander. Now, this in rowing terms, it's not quite like winning an Oscar, but it's very close to it. <laughs> it's the only Connacht crew ever, I think, to have won it in Cork. And uh, they were certainly the first crew from west of the Shannon ever to do it. So in uh, <clears throat> 1956, 
it was ruled that a male club member could take a lady friend into a club boat. <laughs> but a lady member could not take a male friend into a club boat. Quite right. <laughs> yes. Oh, I mean, tut, tut. <laughs> now, in the 1950s and 60s, oh, <clears throat> they held very regular fundraising dances there. And indeed, I remember them very well. I attended quite a few of them. Uh, and obviously this worked because they managed to maintain the club and its membership. Uh, <clears throat> in the 1990s, the clubhouse was demolished and the present structure was erected on the site. And as you say, yeah, it is. It's a very attractive <clears throat> building <clears throat> in an <throat> idyllic kind of a situation. It was originally built <clears throat> uh, on just under the Galway-Clifton railway line embankment there. Yes. on the river and uh <clears throat> excuse me it's it's an idyllic uh kind of location and funnily enough it's kind of like a secret uh to most Galwegians who i i suspect wouldn't even know of its existence but it's a long running club since 1864 and i think well worth celebrating yeah Absolutely. Tom, I couldn't agree more. There's a great tradition of rowing, in fact, in Galway, I'm glad to say, and among young people as well. The Bish and the Jez regularly feature teams, both boys and girls. And uh, it's, of course, you see, it, it's made for rowing, isn't it? It's a beautiful, calm oh, yeah. part of the river. <clears throat> Uh, yeah. You know, doesn't get doesn't run into the weir or anything like that. So there's plenty of freedom to to row, right up to Menlo, yeah. back again. You know, it's it's just ideal. Yeah, yeah there are other clubs on the river as well. But yeah, as you say, yeah, Jez and the Bish, uh, fiercely competitive. Yeah. They kept standards up. There are now a number of other schools involved in rowing as well, which is even better, improving yeah. uh, standards and competitiveness again. And yeah. uh, and long may it continue that way. Totally. Yeah. Interesting that women were uh, became members around 1912. There was a very substantial um, sort of women's liberation protests about that time in Galway. Uh, yeah, Emily, was... some of the uh, students attending the university. But really, there was a very strong feeling that women were not being treated fairly, which they certainly weren't at the time. They were denied the franchise and they had, you know, spectacular people coming to talk in Galway. Large numbers of women turned out. So there was yeah. a great movement of women in Galway towards oh, yeah. Rome. It was the suffragettes, really, at totally. the time. Absolutely yeah. wonderful. Absolutely yeah. wonderful. I suspect the university had something to do with it. You know, the the, the feeling there that, you know, liberality was embraced to a, to a large extent. But it's great to see that that was taken up in the rowing <laughs> club in, as, as early as 1912. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah, it seemed like, um, yeah, a, a very kind of almost revolutionary thing to do, to invite it women. Was. In, in yes, I know. Yeah. And then the yeah. ridiculous rule, as you just said there in the 50s, that, you know, uh, a, a, a man could invite a woman on to a boat, but a woman yeah. could not invite a man. <laughs> I know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like out of the 18th century. I know, I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. But wonderful that Morris Simple could capture something like that because that is very entertaining. Oh, you, they were very fortunate in having him as a member because yes. of what he recorded yeah. about yeah. the club. Yeah, That's absolutely. Great.
Tom, that's just lovely. And I, I'm sure you have a beautiful picture of the club as well. I do. I do indeed. Yeah. And of the uh, yeah. Leander crew from 1936. Oh. So very well-known faces lovely. in that crew. Lovely, Tom. That's just excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Well, listen, I'm really doing something th that I was asked to do, and I'm glad to do it, because uh, we're going back now into the times of the Civil War. And, you know, tomorrow, Tom, exactly tomorrow, exactly 100 years ago, four young men were executed uh, in Athlone. Now, these were anti-treaty people. They were all very young. They were all in their 20s. They had fought in the War of Independence. And very sadly, they got caught up in this civil war that should never have happened. Now, just to remind myself, indeed, I had to look it up. The, the, the British, the Anglo-Irish Treaty were, was, as we know, uh, won through the War of Independence and through excellent argument against uh, the British government that Ireland should be given its freedom. But of course, it didn't get all its freedom, as we know. It was denied the six counties in the north of Ireland. They certainly did not want to come into the south. So Britain made this uh, rule that it often does when it's giving freedom to a country, dividing it and giving one portion of it to those who yes. do not want to join the majority. That was done. The second one was a very difficult one to swallow, that you had to take an oath of allegiance to the British king. So every members of the new Irish parliament had to take an oath of allegiance to the British king. But nevertheless, the fact that the 32 counties won their rights to be their own self-government was a wonderful prize. And Michael Collins insisted, yes, it's not all that we wanted. It's not all that we dreamed of. But look, this is a start. We can take this. We can work on this. We will get the rest in due time. And there was a famous vote, as we know, uh, in the Dáil, uh, just before that Christmas, 1921, there was a vote in the Dáil and the in favour of the treaty was only passed by 64 votes. Against it was 57. So you see immediately there was a serious division amongst the parliamentarians, a very serious division. And of course, that erupted into a civil war. But however, in June, the following June, Tom, June the 18th, was a very famous national uh, uh, election. And it was seen as a plebiscite. What did the people of the country think? And the yeah. people of the country, by over 70%, voted in favour of accepting the treaty. So, you know, th that was the situation. It was very, very powerful. But unfortunately, there was a split. And the people who felt you know, the treaty was a betrayal. It was not giving us to what we fought for, took up arms, and they were very well armed indeed. And we know that it began with the siege of the four courts in Dublin. And then uh, these, these armed people went around the country, blowing up bridges, creating trouble. Um, and of course, it had to be dealt with. Yeah. The, feeling was the majority of the people in Ireland, they wanted this treaty to be accepted. They wanted to get on with their lives. They ag agreed with Michael Collins that, look, yes, it's not what we wanted, but we will work towards getting what we want through politics. So yeah, 
Collins said, sorry, it gives us the freedom to achieve our freedom. They see a very That's what great, he said of the treaty. You no, know, yeah. it's a great phrase. It really was yeah. a great phrase. Yeah. Collins was a brilliant man, really. He was a brilliant politician as well as a brilliant uh, military man. But yes, so the leadership of the government then, there was Cosgrave, M Richard Mulcahy, Kevin O'Higgins. They took the position because of the huge majority in favor of the treaty that the anti-treaty IRA were conducting an unlawful rebellion against the legitimate Irish government and they should be treated as criminals rather than as combatants even though they had all fought together in the war of independence and this was a bitter ending Tom to oh, a great sadly. campaign so the, in order to ruthlessly put down the uh, the anti-treaty forces that were creating mayhem in the country, the government decided that there should be executions, that anybody caught bearing arms other than the, the Free State Army would be executed. And of course, as we know, there was a more than 83 executions during that 10-month period, and it yeah. did actually end the civil war. But I'm just talking this week because the family asked me to, to remind us that many of the young men that took part in the Civil War were really idealist men and believed the, the War of Independence, which was bitterly fought, should have been, you know, it, it, they should have achieved all that they were after. Instead, they felt they didn't get all that they wanted. And so they carried on through great ideals, you know, yes. really very idealistic. Yeah. Don't forget, <clears throat> in the 20s, the four I'm talking about, the four I'm talking about was Herbert Collins. Uh, he was from Hedford. There was a Martin Burke. He was 26 years of age. He was from Hedford. Stephen Joyce was from Carlisle Strain. And there was a Dublin man, uh, Thomas Hughes. And they were executed in, in Athlone, literally told the night before and shot the next morning. This was a, you know, a really scary warning to the others. If we catch you with arms, you're going to be executed. So, you know, what happened was, it, it was really sad. Everybody was, was bitterly obsessed that this should happen, that, you know, that there should, among our own people, brother against brother, should try and fight this out. And then in yeah. June, the following June 22, they came into Galway town and Galwegians looked on with alarmed as anti-treaty forces took up positions in buildings throughout the town, Tom. They took over the RIC barracks in Eglinton Street and uh, they were obviously preparing for a long fight. But no sooner were they in the town than in came the Free State Army and uh, under a man called uh, Commandant Michael Brennan. And there were shots being fired across the town, causing huge upset and fear. Poor old Galway, it had gone through the War of Independence. It had its own bitter experiences with the Black and Tans. And now it felt it was facing another war, even though they had voted it by a large majority to accept the treaty, but it didn't matter. They were now caught once again in street warfare. Now, it, it really turned out, however, to be a scrappy affair. 
and um, a tentative truce was agreed between the uh, Free State Army and the um, anti-treaty forces. So the anti-treaty forces evacuated the city by the end of June. They burned some buildings, including Renmore Barracks behind them. They attempted to attack parts of the city the following days before they were driven out, setting fire, burning up some, uh, blowing up some bridges. Um, they attacked, then they retreated almost en masse, about 400 of them retreated towards Clifton. And I'll tell the Clifton story next week because it's quite interesting. But I just want to say a little aside, because into this awful military situation arrived Nora Barnacle, the wife. The, well, she wasn't actually married to James Joyce at the time, but the partner of James Joyce uh, arrived back to see her mum and her sisters with her two children, now, now, now uh, teenagers. Giorgio was 17, Lucia, Lucia was 15 years. They were delighted to get away from Paris. Joyce's book, Ulysses, was published the, the previous February. Huge fuss was made of her husband, and uh, she got tired of all that. She wanted to get back to Galway. And so she, they had a bit of money now, and she dressed the children beautifully, and she wore fashion, Paris fashions, I should say. And she arrived with the two children in Galway while all this military situation was going on. I'm only slightly laughing because it's a bit ludicrous that it should have happened. But she was delighted to be home. And they, this time they stayed with Mrs. O'Casey's boarding house in Nuns Island because the children now who are sophisticated teenagers uh, refused to go into poor old Nora, Nora's house, a mother's house in Bowling Green because they didn't like the smell of boiled cabbage. And, you know, they were sensitive teenagers and that's very understandable. So they would wait outside while Nora had a great old chat with her mother and her two sisters, Delia and Kathleen. And she showed the children around the town. She showed them the presentation convent where she had worked. And uh, they had their meals out in cafes. And, you know, it's extraordinary that they could live this kind of life until it began to get hot. And at night, they were woken by gunshot wounds. Giorgio was the most scared. And uh, he called all the fighters Zulus. And he said, this is really terrible. And eventually, when... Uh, into O'Casey's came some of the free army, free state army soldiers looking for a place to ambush up on the roof and going through the, the digs with the, where they were staying, jump, going up the stairs, making all this noise. The, Nora realized, I've got to get out of here. So she says that she took the two, the two teenagers and they got the train from Galway Station. But of course, the uh, the anti-state, uh, uh, the anti-treaty people were in Renmore Barracks. They were firing at the trains as they went by. Nora and the children had to duck down, lie on the floor of the carriage, and the train. You know, used to used to this, accepting every day that some shots were fired. Kept on going at full steam, and eventually they arrived in Dublin. And uh, of course, they arrived in Dublin. And they were met by Nora's wonderful uncle, Michael Healy, a very generous man to the to Indeed, the her family. Yes. Yeah. 
And uh, when he heard the story from Nora and the two children as they as he met them at the platform, what does he do? But he laughs and laughs and laughs. And as they sat down to have their lunch, he laughed again so much he nearly fell off his chair. So <laughs> even though the matters were very serious, um, he was used to it. He was used to it. Yeah, Going yeah. back to the four young men that were executed, I have a very sad letter uh, from Herbert uh, Collins to his mother. I won't read it out now, but I am publishing the letter. Really very sad letter to his mom. But a letter of extraordinary forbearance and bravery and saying, look, you know, I'm accepting this totally. I have made my peace with God. I'll soon be in heaven with my brother who was shot previously by the British forces in Dublin. We will soon be together. And he asks his mother not to worry, to hold her head up high. And really, we, we have to empathize with these young people. Sure, they, you know, they were they took the wrong course there by becoming part of the anti-treaty forces, but they were genuine, Tom. They believed the word, yeah. what they were doing was right. And yeah. you know, they didn't do these particular fellows didn't do anything very serious. But next week, Tom, I want to just continue about Clifton, because once again, poor Clifton, who was besieged by the Black and Tans during the War of Independence, are now being besieged by about 400 of the anti-treaty forces. And it's a very difficult time for Clifton people and for Monsignor McAlpine. But I'll talk about that next week. And okay. the Civil War continues. So what do we do? Unfortunately, yeah. Unfortunately. Well, we look forward to that. Well, Tom, we do, we will indeed. And it's nice to talk to you. It's nice to be back together after the Christmas. I missed yeah. our chats. So, yeah. Anyway, Tom, take care. Well, sick, sickness took over, I'm afraid. So. I know that. <clears throat> no, it's all right. It's okay. We're all together I, did, I didn't even have a voice, Ronnie. Oh, did you not? Well, that's unusual, Tom. You mean I know. A lot of people would say more yeah. of that, please. Yeah, I know. Gosh, poor old Maura. She was probably so happy to have such a quiet household for a while. But however, I'm only fooling. It's nice to hear you. Yeah. Okay. All right, Tom, take care. Until next week. Yeah. We'll yeah. Be there. We'll be there.